Just want to say, take a moment to welcome those of you that are joining in person and those of you that are joining online or that might be tuning in later this week. Um, we're grateful to, to be here together, to be in this Sabbath routine together. So thanks again for um, waking up early and coming into this pretty cold room today. Uh, the heat didn't get quite turned on inside, so I see some hats and some bundles and uh, feel free to, to layer up or to grab some coffee from the back and, and come back in. Um, but yeah, we just want to, before we get going, we just want to pause for a second and pray and uh, invite, the, invite the Holy Spirit to move in this moment. So uh, join me as we pray. Uh, Lord, I, I just thank you again that uh, we have an opportunity to gather uh, in a space together um, that's enclosed, that has uh, protection from the elements, that allows us an opportunity to, to talk with one another and to hear from you and Jesus, we commit this space back over to you and uh, trust that where you're leading us um, would be where you might want us to go. So it's in your name that we pray and that we thank you again for the chance to gather. Amen. So my name is Megan Cowell, and I have the privilege of being our spiritual formation director here at West Seattle. And before I came here to this location, I was able to work with Taylor Greer, our very own Taylor Greer, for the last couple of years uh, in our, as a co-lead in our Roadmap to Reconciliation process for all of Bethany. So a little bit of history behind that is that Bethany's been on a journey um, for almost 10 years now of addressing what does racial reconciliation and justice look like in our city. And so for those of you that are new or perhaps coming back uh, for the first time after time away, uh, we're currently in the middle of a sermon series titled Restoration, Life Amidst Racism, Life in the Spirit Amidst Racism. And this sermon series is happening across all six of our locations, and it's a part of our commitment to racial justice and reconciliation as we live into our context, uh, stewarding the faith in the time that we find ourselves. So last week, Pastor Prentice uh, described to us the Acts 10 story of Apostle Peter and Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who both crossed these social divides, uh, going across the train tracks, if you will, to engage in following the way of Christ together, and how this led to being uh, a different way uh, of, of people together through the power of the Holy Spirit. So this week, we're going to continue on with the early church. We're going to talk about Acts 15, uh, as well as the second text, which is in Galatians chapter 2. So it takes us about seven minutes to read this Acts passage. It's pretty long. It's verses 15 to 35. And this is something we experimented during a meeting this week called Teaching Team. And Bethany operates on a teaching team model, which means that every week, the pastors and the communicators from these different locations gather together to study and discuss the text for the week. And then they continue on throughout, uh, throughout that week in conversation as they, as they kind of fine-tune what it is that we're going to be sharing across the city. And this, I believe, is one of our gifts of, of our church, uh, to be able to learn from different people with different experiences, different beliefs, different um, understandings of the Bible. And it's been an intention, uh, a, a, a very intent, what, what are we saying here? A very intentional decision, there we go, um, to widen that circle of teachers beyond just the six uh, male lead pastors that uh, lead our church. And the hope is to be a more diverse and inclusive space that can be stretched and shaped by the people uh, that are a representation of our church. And so rather than reading that to Acts text today, written by Luke, he's a Gentile physician, uh, I'd like us to turn to another account of experience written by Paul, who's a former Jewish opposer to Christianity, who then turns apostle. Uh, and he refreshingly does not hold back. He doesn't hold back in sharing his own opinion of what happened between himself and with Peter and ultimately with the leaders of the church at this time. He gives us a look into the messiness of change for Peter and for the young church. So if you have your Bibles or your apps handy, you can turn to Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 1, 11 through 12. <clears throat> and I'll be sharing from the message version today, which you can also follow along on the screen. So uh, this is, again, Paul writing. 
Later, when Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. Here's the situation. Earlier, before certain persons had come from James, Peter regularly ate with non-Jews. But when that conservative group came from Jerusalem, he cautiously pulled back and put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Jewish friends. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Jewish clique that had been pushing the old system of circumcision. Unfortunately, the rest of the Jews in the Antioch church joined in that hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was swept along in the charade. But when I saw that they were not maintaining a steady, straight course according to the message, I spoke up to Peter in front of all of them. If you, a Jew, live like a non-Jew when you're not being observed by the watchdogs of Jerusalem, what right do you have to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem buddies? We Jews know that we have no advantage of birth over non-Jewish sinners. We know very well that we're not set right with God by rule-keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know? We tried it, and we had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. Convinced that no human can please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. Have some of you noticed that we are not yet perfect? No great surprise, right? And one And and are you ready to make the accusation that since people live like me, who go through Christ in order to get things right with God, aren't perfectly virtuous, that Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin? That accusation is frivolous. If I was trying to be good, I would be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. I would be acting as a pretender. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion, and I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is that lived by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not going to back on that. I'm going to go back on that. Is it not clear to you that I had to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God? I refused to do that, to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. So I'm going to pause again and just pray one more time before we go any further into our conversation today. Uh, Holy Spirit, again, we recognize your presence, and uh, we know that this time is for you. It has only ever been yours. And so we turn it back over to you. Uh, I ask that you would quiet the distractions in our minds and to disarm us as we talk about racism amidst the church and amidst ourselves. We trust your guidance over this time. We trust that as we submit to your power and your movement here, that you will guide our conversations. And ultimately, will this be for your glory? We ask again, could this be for your glory and not for... um, things like ego and the things that feel important to us in this moment. Uh, We ask in this that uh, we might strive to be a credible witness to your son Jesus' name, in whom we pray in this moment. Uh, Amen. So for those of you that appreciate an outline, I just want to give us a little sketch of a roadmap of where we're headed next. So uh, it it also is helpful, I think, to find the outline so that we know the application of this text to our life amidst uh, racism in particular in this series. So we're going to go back and look through the lens of three characters as we identify how this Galilean Jesus transfigures our relationships and our structures in such anticipated ways through the ever-moving power of the Holy Spirit uh, by confronting the concept of this cultural or ethnic other. 
uh, in Acts 15, Peter in the early church is going to give us an example of being open to this continual disruption of their own assumptions, both through failure and through discernment, as a way to move in sync with the radical love of Jesus towards a new relationship. So again, those three people are the Holy Spirit, ever on the move. We've got Jesus, a Galilean, and Peter, the rock. So the continual theme throughout this preparation of the sermon uh, this last week that I kept coming back to was to keep it simple, to tell the story and let the story speak for itself. So that's going to be my goal today. And Paul breaks it down into a simpler way of understanding. And I was reminded late Friday night uh, just of, of what the children are studying and how in this week it actually summarizes uh, what we're going to be learning from another perspective, another way to look at it. They're learning about living connected to God as the vine and uh, as, as we are the um, connected to God as the vine and us as the branches. Because as life connected to the Spirit makes new things. So they're going to be studying this, this vine and branch analogy. The kids are watching a video on pruning, and I find this pretty funny because as I prepared the lesson, lesson and watched the film myself, uh, I was also in the process of pruning a bunch of trees in our yard. So as, as, as in I had just come inside, uh, had taken a break from my manual labor, kind of feeling guilty for being outside and not you know, sitting down and studying and getting ready for the week, um, and I opened up my laptop with these pitchy, dirty hands from cutting down all these trees and branches to read about how God moves through pruning, and I was like, okay, I should probably pay attention to this. Uh, I was in this process of lopping off all these branches that were infected with the disease so that the, these trees could continue to flourish and to grow. And I was struck by this question of, oh man, like, what do I need to be, uh, what, what needs to be corrected in my own life right now? Like, I'm cutting off all of these branches to help these trees, and are there, are there branches sticking out of me that need some attending uh, to? Do I have some pre- preconceived ideas or ways of being that are influenced uh, by the system of racism in my own life that need to be uh, tended to? So having moving, uh, have I been moving away from the center of Christ towards a mindset of, of bitterness or resentment against X, Y, Z, expression of the church or types of Christians that I find myself around that I'm like, like upset, upset about? Have I missed the Spirit's new and renewed way of being just because my dedication to my religion? So again, all of these thoughts are fl- like fluttering around in my brain as I'm pre- getting ready to share with you all and as I'm cho- chopping down all these tree branches and, and pieces of tree. Um, but... What I find refreshing about this Acts and Galatians text is that we see Peter, or Cephas, which is literally translates to the rock in Aramaic, who's considered the rock of Christ's church, still in need of pruning and direction through, the, through, Christ, through Paul's call out. So we see that Peter continually needs uh, this pruning and direction. So it's the spirit moving through the people, not just the people themselves, that leads to a changed way of being in God's radical expression for love of his people. And the church of Acts 15 displays the early church's segregated Jews and Gentiles, culturally different spaces that are being opened up by the Spirit to be connected and combined into one new thing that looks different than it ever did before. How similar is this to the many churches in the Big C Church today? 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Martin Luther King Jr. has stated multiple times. It's a quote we've heard repeated by Pastors Billy Graham, Pastors John M. Perkins, and so many others. And I'm repeating it now because it will remain true if we do not continue to actively respond to racism in our midst, in our churches. And somehow we move back to where the church was before Peter and Paul interacted and chose to move into this new way of living, where the spirit, living in the spirit against these cultural norms. So in the Acts account, which I encourage you to go back and read later this week, we see a process of discernment that the Jerusalem Council undergoes that I don't want us to overlook. The council takes in the question of whether Jewish Christians should be circumcised, which had been the identifier of the covenant of the Jewish people, for, for the beginning of their, since the beginning of their religion. They listened to stories and accounts at this time where they were able to make a decision about what to do from there. 
They didn't just throw the culture out the window, uh, but they took some time to make sure that it was the true leading of the Holy Spirit. So again, this, this is the type of movement that we are invited to participate in that's new, that always renews, that makes new things out of the world. So we're going to read just a snippet of that Acts segment for a little bit more context. And this is out of the NIV version, um, just verses 6 through 12, that reads, The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither us us nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became quiet as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. There's an example here in gathering to listen and to consider and to respond in relationship to thoughts that differ from these accepted norms. Is it not easy to stand up against, it is not easy to stand up against your own culture for the sake of the gospel, which is for all people, especially when it's steeped in history and what we thought was supposed to be. So this is all, all as in no favoritism. And, this, and theologian uh, Willie James Jennings observes that God's hand, was on, God's hand on the Gentile flesh was just and full and free as it was on the Jewish flesh. Let me say that again. God's hand on Gentile flesh was just as full and free as it was on Jewish flesh. I want to draw attention to that because though Peter and the leaders of the early church held the authority of leadership, it does not surpass that of the Holy Spirit and how God's self was already moving just as fully in other people. The Jews were considered God's chosen people, descendants of Abraham and Israel from whom the salvation of the world was to come, and it did come in the form of Jesus the Messiah. Gentiles were people not born of the tribes of Israel, and the Jews, in in many contexts, these folks were citizens of Rome, the very government ruling over and oppressing the Jews at this time. So you can see where the struggle to to remain in control could arise. And Jennings goes on to acknowledge in his commentary in Acts that Peter's failure is not just in this initial action of acting hypocritically, but that even in his response to recognizing what was not right, he initiates this progress forward with an objectification of others. He considers the others in theory, the Gentiles in theory, but it's not actual others where the Gentiles are spoken to. Or, or in this case, they're spoken about but not with. How amazing would it have been if in that moment Peter were to return to his new friend Cornelius or to the people, his friends that he eats lunch with all the time or dinner with when the Jewish leaders were not around? What if he had brought them into the conversation here in this moment? And so another question, again, that I'm thinking of is, is how often does this happen when we start talking about race in predominantly white church settings? As if we have an edge on what this real Christianity is about or a true way to understand our faith. And I, I, I want to name that because it's slippery for all of us. Um, and we can see this in mission examples all over the world where church partners come in to teach only to recognize that there's so much for them to learn about God. Taught through the mutual exchange and experience of those who experience the Holy Spirit and uh, an expression of Christianity that is different from their own. Throughout my 20s, I worked for a nonprofit called uh, Children of the Nations, uh, or the Dominican branch, Niños de las Naciones, whose mission was to raise children who transform nations. Their purely national staff had been on the ground for over 20 years, uh, serving Haitian Dominican migrant families uh, in rural bates, or these rural sugar king uh, farms. And in addition to providing local family strengthening and uh, education and medical care, in spiritual care, uh, 
these, this organization had a program called Venture Teams. And these Venture Teams would be an opportunity for community members to interact with American church partners and members of the church that would come uh, to meet the folks that they were partners with throughout the year. And part of my role included sharing meals at the guest house with these team members and helping bridge the gap for processing their experiences. In a way, it was is to help the American church members to understand the widening of their faith based on a growing understanding that is being shaped through different expressions of the image of God that we experience God differently. We can't truly know what it means to move out of a place of cultural preservation if our spaces remain separate. And we can't truly know what it means to move out of a space of cultural preservation if we're not uh, if we do not listen to these other cultures within our mix. And so I feel this on a visceral level when I think about the church context that I've been a part of, where our second highest demographic would be Asian American, and yet we have a room, a room full of white leaders talking about what it's needed for reconciliation, and the only minority voice is my white passing Hapa self. So the term Hapa, for those of you who don't know, is a Hawaiian term, <clears throat> and it's, it's for someone with multiracial ancestry. In Hawaii, the refers, it refers to anyone of mixed ethnic heritage, regardless of the specific mixture, but it's also usually used for including someone of mixed Asian descent. So my cultural background is Japanese-American, but I grew up in Tacoma, uh, where mixed-race kids were essentially the norm in my classroom and in my neighborhood. I can clearly remember the distinction between shared lunches at school, shared conversation about our cultures and our families in my public school, contrasted with being the only multiracial family in my church, where any talk of, of difference or these different cultures that we might experience was like awkwardly avoided with like a side glance or just like these awkward, awkward moments. So I, as I look around in our room, I'm, I'm excited that we're already moving into something different um, and that we're talking about this from, from our context of a community. And so the reason I bring this up, though, is because it feels especially important in the church, even more so than our schools, to consider if the voices of those that are being affected by broken systems all around us are being asked to participate in the life of a space. And that, to add to that, to ensure that they're given time to respond and be active members, again, of the space that we're sharing together. So I think that we can be a different type of space. We can be a space where people care about the nuance of one another's stories and can celebrate how the Spirit renews our faith through one another, through the interweaving of his image bearers crafted in very particular ways, ways that are done very much on purpose. And I mentioned a few weeks ago when we talked about growing together, how we're constantly being formed all the time. We are in the process of formation. And it's by what's around us. And so it's necessary to address these messages of racism that say that one way of being is better, especially as it relates to the context of our faith. We cannot talk about the love of God as real and true if the world experiences Christians as those who support an idea that others' way of living is deficient or unworthy of respect or lesser in some way. We, you and I, the church, like we are the church. It's not staff that are the church. It's, it's we. We are the church as the church can be speaking against what the world is attempting to say, to lie to others who are made in the image of God. And I'm currently reading a book called um, From a Liminal Space. It's an Asian American theology uh, by author Sang Hyun Lee. And it describes a bit of, of why this happens in our culture. There are a lot of factors, but one aspect is, that, is, is this aspect of being especially invisible, invisible in the Asian American experience in particular. As well, they go on to name another factor that I believe transcends to other cultures as well in relation to, to our dominant culture that we have present, which is called a desperate segregation, where through overt and covert messages, folks are being inundated with forces of assimilation and constantly seek to render, that constantly seek to render their peoples, their bodies, their way of thinking, speaking, and being in the world as negative realities, as deficient or unworthy of respect, 
they go on to say, ugly, dangerous, primitive, backward, shameful, or hopeless. I just want to pause for a second and think, like, how would it feel to experience those messages in little tiny paper cuts over and over and over again? Author Lee goes on to continue to write that too many pastors believe that a pastoral ministry that upholds the dignity and cultural integrity of their own people must come first in some strange hierarchy of ministerial tasks that would later, at some point in time, open them up to embracing other people. And of course, the time for fully embracing others never comes because it cannot emerge in this distorted vision of pastoral ministry. And I don't think this is just a pastor's problem. Because I think it speaks to what we as Christians expect of our church. We, as Gentile-born Christians, forget that we were once the marginalized, the unaccepted, and the excluded, the ones disgusted. And so often, we stand here like Peter, kind of keeping this gate shut to people who love God and want to follow God. When we, at one point, were considered outside the story. We can be a people who lead a higher standard, standard of radical love for others that matches how Jesus loved and the way that the Council of Acts 15 approaches this question of including the cultural other is to discern and discuss before making a decision they live into. So again, there's, there's opportunity to take, to take our time, to pause, to consider. And I believe this, our church is at a point um, where we're being called out of this cycle of preservation, of caring for just our own needs only, of, of being a, a segregated, singular culture, and into a new way of being that operates out of knowing where we come from and what Christ has cared about in our communities, in our neighborhoods. I think it's time to be a credible witness that displays a God who loves because we are loving others different than ourselves without conditions. It's time to be a little uncomfortable. I'm feeling uncomfortable. Even as I like, prepared this, I'm like, I feel uncomfortable. I feel spicy. I don't know what I'm doing here, but here we go. And so what, so what is that, and how does this happen when we, when we walk out these doors? So I want us to turn to the person of Jesus, a Galilean, to look, a little bit more of, uh, to look into a little bit more of who he is so that we can, he can model uh, the way of being. So we know Jesus is God. He is fully, his personhood is fully God and fully man. But this serves as an example, he serves as an example of disruption in the religious order and serves as an example of how we can engage from the differences that we hail from. He shows time and time again of ways to move from preservation of self or culture to a posture of your people have become my people and ultimately this, this activation and this movement in the Holy Spirit. And the Son of God comes, uh, again, from the liminal place. It says, The Son of God came into the world and appealed first to Galileans, a liminal and marginalized people, who, unlike those at the center, would be more open to the radical good news of the gospel. To be from Nazareth, from Galilee, in the first century, to be, was to be on the fringes of a subculture that was already a marginalized group. The idea that Jesus was a carpenter doesn't quite fit into our, our current-day carpenter, skilled tradesmen, you know, working in a little shop on the side of the house like the, we think of today. A, a better description, some argue, is that he might have been more akin to like a day laborer or these highly skilled workers that we know that, that, that hang out at Home Depot, accent and all. Scholars have hypothesized that Peter, when he was recognized by people after Jesus had been arrested, was identified based on his accent and his mannerisms that marked him as a Galilean as well. Like, there is a cultural component to Jesus' identity, to his personhood, that influences his ministry. And because God acts with purpose, I have to sit here for a moment and recognize that God's probably done this for a reason. That there might be something special in, in being liminal or being on the boundary of something that might be connecting us with God, of the, with the God of the universe, who rarely uses those in power for his purpose. 
My hope in speaking to people of color, to women, to those on the margins in this conversation is that, that we can seek comfort in a God who's constantly making things new and moving in unexpected ways uh, where there's hope that things won't always be the same. There's a way that we can lean into this liminality even as the marginalization of this broken world attempts to pull, folks, pull you down. And as a mixed-race person coming from multiple cultures, it, it feels sometimes like I'm constantly in the swing between these two different things. At times, there's a desire to be a bridge between the two cultures, and yet where I find my most freedom is recognizing that we're actually something both and fully other, because we're, we're fully neither. So fully both and fully other because we're fully neither. It's a little bit of a brain puzzle to, to percolate with there for you guys. Um, but our, our very existence requires something new. So new for each of the cultures we come from, new in the way that a church is made, was made from Jews and Gentiles, was different than just a Jewish church alone. Uh, Naomi M. Wong, a poet, a novelist, a student at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary, describes a call of reconciliation to mixed race and, and points to where I think we're headed. She states, Did Jesus' is appearing not signal some kind of change in his community? Oh, they would certainly sense that change is imminent, and they feared that change would mean erasure. Little did they know that his appearing was the declaration and proof of the reconciliation of God with humankind and of humankind with humankind. Reconciliation meant that God's people would be empowered to look, feel, care, and act differently. Christ's very being preached this good news, even as he ministered, loved, suffered, died, and rose again. In the same way, mixed-race people are called to follow our Lord into this ministry, love, suffering, death, and resurrection. Like, church, let's do this differently. Just as we're different because we value a church of many perspectives and backgrounds. Like, let's do it differently. And just a, a word to our white listeners. Like, I, I want to pause in a moment as, I, as we talk about different groups of people, and we've, we've named a couple here already, but you have to know that your story and your participation matter just as much, that your advocacy for a different way of living, a different why to this social conversation is, is so important. Many of you have family members of color, children, spouses, people that you really love who are affected by the marginalization of this world. And to say that it hasn't happened in our places of worships where it's seeped in everywhere else is to keep the blinders on. So in this story, you might identify with the Gentiles being talked about. Like, what does it feel like to identify with Peter? But what does it feel like to identify with Peter and the leaders of the church who have stewarded this faith? As a church, we are all stewarding this faith. As I've gotten older, depending on my setting, my clothes, and my actions, I'm white passing, and I have access to an extreme amount of privilege in that. And so I find myself asking that same question in moments when I recognize that as part of this dominant culture, I'm gatekeeping, or that I've been unaware of the invisible people around me. Invisible people who have their own story and their own history that they're stepping into their faith with. And we can't move into shame when this happens. When we have that moment of recognition, we can't, can't fall into that spot where shame aims to shut us down and to stop us from any sort of active response. And that's where I think thinking about our body's reactions and knowing like, okay, I'm having a reaction. I'm going to take a second. I'm going to breathe. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Prentice had us just stop in the middle of the sermon and breathe. So I invite you to do that now too. Let's take a second and just breathe. So going back to our text, what happens when Peter, also a Galilean, becomes the holder of the dominant church culture and how Christianity is done. When the script is flipped and suddenly he has power over the openness, over God exercising in liminality, and he has this, and this radical view of who and how following Christ can look like, we see him falter and restart over and over and over again. So Peter, as the leader of the church, he serves as this personal encouragement to fall individually, to fall in our leadership roles, 
And we can see how a continual awareness is important because even after walking with Jesus and being told that all people are clean, even after being given a message three times in Acts 10, he falters around this issue of circumcision and he falters around his habits of eating with Jews and Gentiles and how he's living into the renewal of the Spirit. We read that the church was growing and flourishing at this time, and so we know that there was a significance in the responsibility that Peter carried. And what Paul calls Peter out for is that he does one thing with one group of people and another with another group. There's even a term for this called code switching, which it comes at a psychological cost to those that have to operate in it. And again, as a mixed person, this is such a natural modus operandi, and, it's, and for some, it's the very means for survival in society. A 2019 Harvard Business Review article titled The Costs of Code Switching, which I highly recommend reading, describes it as, broadly, code switching involves adjusting one's style of speech, appearance, behavior, and expression in ways that will optimize the comfort of others in exchange for treatment, for fair treatment, quality service, and employment opportunities. This is a familiar thing that people do, but when Peter is doing it, it's serving him in a different way. He was disobedient to what he had learned that the gospel was, and it was difficult for him to live that out in public. It was a, he was under a process to continue to bring that into these more high-stakes situations. And we can imagine he probably felt a little shame or unease, not knowing what to do and actively going against that pull of the Holy Spirit because of his ingrained behavior of tradition and culture, two very strong factors that shape our stories and shape who we are and how we are and how we interact with God and others. And again, this isn't the first time we see Peter in a moment of actively going the wrong direction. It's probably one of the reasons that we can identify with him so well. Because it's in that moment when he's identified as a Galilean as, and as one of Je Jesus' disciples. And he animately denies it until the rooster crows reminding him of, of what Jesus had said to him just a little bit time before that. And again, the, the, so this failure of Peter, as named in Paul in Galatians 2, is not just his actions done out of preservation for his own interpretation of life. Um, but that he does it to save face with ones in power. And if anyone's to be an authority, again, wouldn't it be Peter? Because he spent time with Jesus. But he doesn't have, that, like, doesn't he have the authority to move and to exercise a different way of living to lead into the church? But he falters. So we all, we all know that we will falter, and that is okay. So that, again, there's a reminder in Peter, in the rock on which the church is established, that dropping the ball happens to even, even to the best of us. I don't know about you, but when it comes to talking about race, it's helpful to know that it is okay to mess up, to blunder, to have moments. Um, but that fear of messing up isn't a good enough reason for us not to try. And so in closing, as we consider what the children are learning about uh, downstairs, again, uh, in John 15, right before that, in John 14, uh, Jesus is talking about how the Holy Spirit is meant to be the advocate, the one moving us, the one doing the movement. All that's required is that we respond that we can respond to his love and loving others as we were first loved. And so as I invite the band to join us, to come up and to join us as we wrap up for today, uh, we'll have a moment to respond in worship. Um, and I know I've, I've left you with a lot of things to think about, but to maybe to synthesize that, to come back down for a second, I'll invite you to think about how, how Jesus transfigures our relationships and he transfigures our structures, the very things that we find ourselves being swept along by. And he does this through the ever-moving power of the Holy Spirit. So how is the Spirit moving in anticipated ways in the life around you? Again, how, how do you see and feel and touch and experience through all of your senses the Spirit moving in unanticipated ways in the life around you?